This is Fresh Tracks Weekly. We've got a few news stories today. No fishing corner, but next week, Michael promised he'll have a good fishing corner. And then we're also gonna have a deeper dive where we're discussing the cultural shifts that are starting to happen in some of the state's fish and wildlife commissions. For me, this weekend, got out and did some more sheep scouting. As I said in the last episode, that's kind of all I can think about. Uh, but Karen and I put a lot of miles on, glassed a ton. We saw some amazing country and it's starting to set in just how difficult this hunt is going to be. I'm still stoked. I have a sheep tag in my pocket, uh, but yeah, seven days into scouting so far. And what I've learned is that just to get into the zone where I can probably glass sheep is about seven to nine miles of hiking, climbing anywhere from 2000 to 3000 feet. Um, and that's just to get into the start of the zones. The weather can roll in and you can't see anything, which makes it really interesting. I've only spotted one band of rams so far that are on summer range. I did see a bunch before they moved up, uh, but yeah, honestly, all of it's just making me more excited because I wanted a real sheep hunt. I wanted a tough sheep hunt and I think I'm gonna get it. So yeah, with that, gonna roll into some news. In Nevada, both mule deer and bighorn sheep have seen steady declines in recent years due to drought, and now it was compounded by the heavy snowpack and a tough winter. While many of these desert areas were in desperate need of water, that heavy winter snowpack fell on dwindling forage, and the snow came too late to fill up any of the water sources that the wildlife depend on. So the mule deer have gone from a high of 200,000 in the 90s down to around 68,000 now. Bighorns went from a high of 10,000 in 2018 down to about 7,100 currently. An article in the Nevada Independent interviewed several Nevada Department of Wildlife biologists talking about how these animals are losing battles on multiple fronts. Significant housing developments in mule deer winter range continue to occur, including one that will consist of three to 4,000 luxury houses in historic winter range. I think it's important to delineate these impacts on wildlife. While things like drought and severe weather will have a significant year-to-year -year influence on wildlife survival, things like developing houses on a winter range, that's a permanent impact. Once those houses go up, they're there to stay. So hopefully this drop in population is the bottom of a trough in a cyclical pattern, and hopefully that snowpack will help fill up some of those depleted desert water sources. Last week, we mentioned that Oklahoma was added to the list of states with confirmed cases of chronic wasting disease. Now, Florida has also detected its first positive case. A road-killed white-tailed deer was sampled in Holmes County and found to have the disease. The Florida Wildlife Conservation Commission has been monitoring and testing deer since 2002, but this recent positive has triggered the state to implement a response plan in which they will be collecting samples from specific zones and trying to figure out how much CWD has spread. Depending on the results from these sampling efforts, it'll determine how the department plans to react in regards to management. Also within the realm of CWD, Bowhunting Magazine recently put out an article that highlighted several research studies looking into genetic factors that affect how susceptible white-tailed deer are to getting the disease. These studies took place using captive white-tailed deer herds and they genetically tested individuals and found that deer that had certain genetic traits were more prone to get CWD. Once they identified these genetic traits, they were able to remove those highly susceptible individuals and found that they could significantly lower prevalence of CWD in those captive herds. Obviously, this approach is only practical within a captive setting, 
but the hope is that this could potentially provide a glimpse into the future of herds potentially slowly recovering on their own. Basically, if the more susceptible individuals continue to die off over time, it could lead towards selecting for those genetics where the deer are less susceptible. In Montana, the Fish and Wildlife Commission held its June meeting where several notable things happened. The first concerning elk hunting access agreements where the commission approved 49 applications. So these elk hunting access agreements are a deal between the department and private landowners in which the landowner allows a limited amount of public hunters to hunt their land in exchange for elk licenses or permits issued to the landowner or their qualified designees. This year, the approved applications will open up around 500,000 acres of private land for a minimum of three hunters per property, one of which those hunters can be chosen by the landowner. Some of these slots will be selected from a random draw, and the others will be offered to hunters in the order that they drew their respective elk licenses. The FWP press release touts opening an additional 540,000 acres of inaccessible or underaccessible public land through payments to the landowner or reimbursements for improvements to facilitate public access, basically paying landowners who border the public land, allowing hunters to go through and access that. So a million acres of new access sounds great in the headline of a press release, but there's a few caveats to note. Half of that acreage will only provide access for around 400 hunters. And then the other half, the other 500,000 acres, includes a significant amount of acreage that is already accessible to the public, but still providing additional access. Some hunters voiced concerns that there was very little transparency in regards to those elk hunting access agreements, not knowing what exactly the landowners were gonna receive and what the public hunter was gonna receive. There's also concern for using currency in the form of elk permits to pay for public access could be a slippery slope towards privatizing wildlife. But this will serve as a great segue into our deeper dive where we're talking about state fish and wildlife commissions, who has the power to make decisions and shifting cultures within those commissions. All right, deeper dive this week, talking about changing cultures within like fish and wildlife commissions. Um, seems like, at least within the, Oregon and Washington are in the news recently because of kind of this like cultural shift within the department. Yeah. Um, and then I figure, and then I don't think that other states are immune from various influences either, but. I, th I thought just to briefly start, give like a quick rundown of how most state fish and wildlife commissions operate. And I guess I, and I don't know for sure at all. I did some quick research to try to figure out. And it seems like most states, the commissioners are governor appointed. Most, yep. And so that governor is going to choose however many commissioners and the, the number of commissioners can vary state to state. But then these commissioners are supposed to hold, you know, manage wildlife or help make decisions for the public. The public trust. Randy should do the explaining of the public trust thing. Like, what what is the job of a commissioner? Like, yeah, when when you're appointed, <clears throat> excuse me, as a commissioner, you your commission has some charter. In other words, some purpose, some mission that usually comes from your state constitution or some appropriate statute that's been passed by the legislature or, or by the citizens. And so that defines what the state has placed as the priority for these commissioners to, who help manage, help give guidance to the departments. And so the changes we're seeing 
might be somewhat within the departments, but it's mostly political change that's happening at the commission level. Right. And uh, so in the public trust setting, if you are a commissioner, you're one of the trustees of the public trust of wildlife in that state. And you are accountable to all citizens of that state to manage the trust corpus, which corpus is the asset of the trust. In other words, manage the wildlife in a sustainable manner for future generations and current generations. Right. So, uh, and there's a whole list of other things, but that that's really the, the rule of thumb of it is you, you have to do this not based on your own biases, not based on your own self-interest. That's one of the key things of a trustee is an independent, reasonable, and prudent person. Right. Well, And I notice in some states they'll have rules about what political party, like balance between political party affiliations and then also geographic balances, like where in Montana, for example, we have like the seven regions right. or game management regions that one commissioner from each region to represent that part of the state. And then it was also kind of my understanding that those commissioners listen to the Fish and Wildlife Department largely on recommendations of yep. what they should do. So the department biologists and researchers and all these various staff are on the ground, you know, have a pulse on what's happening factually on the landscape. And also, but that, but more so too with uh, society, with hunters, with ranchers, with the public, they're right. kind of that conduit that connection in my mind but sometimes I feel like that's not true or doesn't hold true to the extent that I would like to see right um but to your point of these professionals these scientists biologists who work for departments that's one of the seven tenets of the North American model that is very common throughout all of our models in every state is that we use science as the basis for wildlife management Right. Otherwise, you'd get commissioners who say, "Ah, well, I don't care what science says. I, you know, I just hate honeybees. Let's go kill all those damn honeybees." You know, <laughs> one of them bit me the other day, <laughs> or whatever it might be. You know, some seagull shit on my windshield, and I let's go kill all those <laughs> damn seagulls. Or, so <laughs> that's why we have this standard of science as the basis for wildlife management. Right. And most of these commissioners, they might have appropriate experience where they can check all the boxes that each state, most states identify. You must, you know, one commissioner from this interest group, one from this or whatever. And there, there's kind of an expectation that this commissioner is going to come and represent interests, but they're not going to have the science background that these biologists do. And that's right. why we have these highly trained, amazing minds who are there doing the recommendations of how we should manage the wildlife in a sustainable manner. Right. Yeah. And so I guess the, the news in both Washington and Oregon to some extent are the influx of anti-hunting is probably a little extreme, but just like individuals who question the role of hunting within the wildlife management. Right. And so I think, and and some of these groups that are advocating for that push argue, and probably rightfully so, that hunters have a heavier sway within the Fish and Wildlife Commissions than non-hunters do. Right. And anglers. Some of and them anglers. are yeah, also yeah, yeah. saying the same about anglers. And I mean, in like in North Dakota and I think it was Michigan, you actually have to be a hunter to be on their commission. Yeah. 
And so I think that I don't know if that's necessarily um, like a secret or if it's a, a problem because in my mind, like the whole idea behind the North American model is that, you know, hunting is used as this conservation tool. We've talked about it a bunch in the past and hopefully people are familiar with how the North American model works. But, you know, hunting as this conservation tool has been extremely successful as a um, funding mechanism, as a way to get, you know, people to care about wildlife, as just like a way to protect and conserve wildlife. So, uh, and I don't know if some of these advocates to want to see less hunter influence yes. know, the, know the history. Do you think they know? Yes. They, they, so they know the whole history of the North American. Like they're, I think there's some naivety to it. I think in some respects, but then there's also, there's definitely people who, yeah, I don't know, or more. There is some, I think, uh, you know, using Washington as the example, they're one of the states that get, uh, most states get almost zero or very little general fund money to run their fish and game departments. Michael goes and buys a fishing license, that goes into the department. There's matching money from Dingle Johnson on your fishing gear that you buy, <laughs> buy a ton time. of. My, Michael's a large voluntary taxpayer in the <laughs> fishing world. <laughs> but the same happens in the hunting space. Where in Washington, it's one of the states that, of, if you ranked them all, they probably get more general fund money. And so that's being used as kind of a mechanism to say, look, there's a lot of general fund money coming in here. You guys shouldn't have all the say. Right. Uh, it, but but that, that's, that's the mechanism being used. The yeah. agenda being provided by the current governor and their appointees. I think Washington has nine uh, commissioners, if I remember correctly. And they're on a rotation. So mm-hmm. a, a governor would need a few terms or a couple terms to, quote, unquote, stack the deck. But the current governor has. I think the current governor has six appointees on there. And they've made it very clear. They want to change the entire definition, change the charter, change everything, and de-emphasize hunting and fishing as part of their wildlife management strategies for the entire agency, which is supposedly reflective of what the citizens of the state want. What are they trying to emphasize then? Like, what if it's not hunting as a conservation tool, like, are they just saying, like, we'll get more funds from this general fund you're talking about? I don't know that they've thought it through that far. They're just saying, let's yeah. not use hunting as a t- and fishing as a tool to manage wildlife. I, to me, and I could be totally wrong in this, but I feel like some of the messaging that I've seen is almost like, well, let's let, let nature take care of itself. What is there to fund? We'll just put predators back on the landscape and nature will take care of itself. Hmm. But to me, <laughs> modern wildlife science has shown us that we're, humans are here and we're here to stay and we're part of the system whether we like it or not. And so to just think that everything will just be hunky-dory, everything's going to work out perfect, it just, just doesn't seem feasible. Like I don't I feel like wildlife management, like we have messed up so many systems that we have to – help these systems along if we want to see them function in a reasonable manner. But Yeah, they use this language in this draft that they have. It's called the precautionary principle. That if in, if there's even the slightest doubt, just don't do anything. Well, the science says 
here's the best information we have. Let's do this or let's do that. Let's not harvest as much or let's uh, improve this habitat or let's do this. Yeah. And we'll adapt and learn as we go. This precautionary principle says, no, uh-uh, unless you got like 100% certainty, we're, we're just, no, 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 none of that. Exactly. Well, that. So. And they're using, but that's the thing is both sides are saying that we're trying to use the best available science. Right. And they're both backing, they're like, no, the best available science, like, well, I guess one example in Washington is like, we don't have enough data on the black bears to, you know, say whether or not there should be a season on them. And that's where their commission says that. Yeah. Their agency biologists, I sat through this. This was like a year and a half ago. I watched her presentation. It floored me how much she knew about those black bears, their habits, their trends, the cycles, the population dynamics. And it was pretty much, oh, we don't believe you. Yeah, I, li- I watched one of their steelhead, like, once. And it was just like, that's what they kept on saying. is like, we don't have enough information. We don't have enough information to make, uh, like, an educated guess or whatever. So I, I, I get that both sides can say that. But I, for me, the lesson of this is a couple of things. One, we've got some really big fires burning. And while people want to argue about lighted knocks and trail cameras and stuff, <laughs> The town is burning down, and we're out there picking the dandelions out of the out of the front lawn. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. it, this is serious stuff. And, and then you go across the river to Oregon, and you see the things that they've been changing. And you look at ballot initiatives across all those West Coast states. No more hunting with hounds. You know, restrictions on this, restrictions on that. And these are huge, huge issues. And it, we did a podcast on this uh, last spring. Uh, a year ago and it was when this just started gaining a foothold in Washington and I did a bunch of research on it and I was dumbfounded because I always thought of Washington as this fishing hunting yeah. state yeah, yeah. Me too. in and, certain parts it definitely is yeah but that whole I-5 corridor there uh is you know it, population wise it it controls the vote Right, and which almost brings up, so I don't know if you saw, there's a bill, and I think it's, like, about to either... In Oregon. In Oregon. Yep. Yeah, sorry, not Washington, Oregon, to kind of shift the power yep. away from the population centers and give more to the rural areas. So it would be more of a geographic distribution of voice within the Fish and Wildlife Commission versus purely population-based. And so I don't fully understand all the consequences of that. I know like the Oregon Hunters Association is pushing that. I think that's what it's called. Oregon Hunters Association yep. pushing that hard and uh, basically going on the f- offensive, trying to, um, you know, make a more, in their opinion, more balanced fish and wildlife commission. Right. So, and that's, uh, it's, I just looked it up here. It's house bill three zero eight six. Again, this is a state based group that is saying, hey, we, we got to start being proactive. And right. all the kudos in the world to the Oregon Hunters Association. And they may not get it through, but I hope they do. And if they don't, they'll learn from that, and hopefully they will. But Oregon's trying to do what we do in Montana. We have it more geographically broken out by commissioners. Yes. Because yeah. regions 6 and 7 don't have nearly the population of region 2 and 3. Right. 
Right. I mean, we got got both you know, yep. just in recent. They have three. a lot of the wildlife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. They do. Yeah. And they got a lot of the landmass. Yeah. So the issues are out there. They're in touch with it. They understand it. So what Oregon's trying to do is say, let's make this a little bit more like say it's like Montana or Wyoming yeah. or Idaho, where it's not strictly population based because currently Oregon it's based on uh, congressional districts. So congressional districts are are positioned to be generally about the same size and population. Well, that makes you get one commissioner from Eastern Oregon and then around the Portland area, you yeah, get yeah. however many. I got you. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we don't in Montana we do it more geographically. Yeah. And I I think that's better. Yeah. Because those people out there are way more in touch with the needs of Eastern Montana than someone sitting in Butte or Bozeman or Helena or wherever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and I think the other question that somewhat falls into that category is, like, should hunters have a bigger seat at the table than non-hunters when it comes to wildlife decisions? And I don't know. I mean, the funding, most of the funding comes from us is my thing. Yeah. It's like, you got to, I mean, I don't know. Like, the the birder's not, not paying in the birding fee to go, you know, (laughs) but I'm sure that they would advocate for more wildlife and and whatnot. Yeah. But here, you guys know, I'm in my CPA life. I'm the trustee of multiple trusts. So if you want to nerd out on being a trustee, I'm your guy, but a trustee has to look at all facts and circumstances of what a reasonable and prudent person would do. So if you're the trustee of, let's say a financial trust, would you say, you know what, you might be the investment where I'm making all my money, but hell with you. I don't like you. I'm getting rid of you, and I'm going to let this trust just go to hell. <laughs> no. No. <laughs> you, you would get sued yeah. if you did that as a trustee of a financial or, or private trust. Right. So a trustee of a public trust cannot disregard where the funding resources come from. They keep this trust asset, the wildlife, intact. Right. So but even outside of the just the financial aspect of it, I feel like just the knowledge base and understanding how wildlife conservation works, like how just understanding wildlife and public lands and habitat and all the whole system, I feel like, and of course I'm biased because I'm a hunter and I spend so am I. every weekend out in the wild <laughs> doing something. Yeah. It's like, in my mind, it's like, I feel like we as hunters or outdoor users, Public land users have more knowledge and a, a better understanding to make informed decisions. That's a versus fact. someone who you know lives in the city and this like likes the idea of a black bear existing on the landscape. I like the idea of a black bear existing on the landscape as well. But uh, history and science have shown us that we can go harvest black bears. And it's not going to negatively impact the system. In fact, in some cases, it can positively impact the system and help manage, like, balance population. So it's just like a, yeah, I, it's hard for me to, like, you want everyone to have an equal, like, we want to have a democracy in some respect. But, like, I don't know. I, I get really uneasy when someone who's unknowing about the subject is trying to make all the decisions well what what you are seeing in washington is democracy versus you know if you want to get into democracies versus representative republics or whatever you know that's that has always been to keep the majority from exerting tyranny or whatever you'd want to call it on the minority that's why we have an electoral college that's why we have a lot of things in this 
country that is not purely a full-on democracy. Because in Washington, they're just doing it by per capita, by population. Mm -hmm. And they're like, well, enough of us in the state say this is what we want for the rest of you. Too bad. And so there's there's a whole bunch of things going on here that in you know, right now, Colorado is starting to have some meetings about what role hunting and hunters and stuff might play in all that. It's like, whoa, you know, <laughs> we're talking about some serious hunting states, Oregon, Washington, Colorado. These discussions are happening. And we as hunters, as anglers, better start paying attention and quit fighting with each other, you know, Put, put down the, the baseball bats that we keep swinging at each other. And these are the real issues to the future of what we love. Right. And, and to think that it can't happen in your state, you, you're sleeping if you think this couldn't happen in your state. Yeah. Well, and then I, I got to bring up, too, yeah. because it's not just like an anti-hunting or people questioning the role of hunting. There's also other threats, in my mind, yep. to the North American model. And a lot of it uh, comes in the form of trying to like privatize or or privatize wildlife or move things more into like favoring landowners and things that hurt the public land hunter. We've seen examples in Montana and New Mexico, Utah. So it's just like I think it's that's a, an important one too. Like any time you have a politically appointed person. So Michael and I are best buddies here. I'm like, hey, right. hey, Michael, I'm going to appoint you. I'm the governor. I'm going to appoint you to the commission right. because you're really sympathetic to us walleye anglers. Yeah. <laughs> and you're going to go and you're going to plant walleyes everywhere, right? Because don't tell anyone, but I, I own a tackle company that just, yeah, I got you. just goes only to walleye anglers. For so sure. <laughs> I, I'm using a goofy example, right? But to your point, Marcus, I mean, when you're a political appointee, you bring with it your biases and your baggage, and you might try to get more tags to your community or more of the department's funding to your group, and it has nothing to do with science. Oh, for sure. There's it, some blatant examples of conflict of interest where it's right. self-serving that, votes that this like... Exactly. Let's yeah. use Montana for an example, okay? okay? <laughs> we have people on our commission that are absolutely in a conflict of interest on a lot of their votes. Oh, totally. yeah. And the number one thing for a trustee is to operate independently without conflict. So every time a vote comes up that that person has a conflict of interest, they should recuse themselves. They don't. And it doesn't appear to be any consequences, really. Zero. It just is like... Just accepted that, well, to the victor goes the spoils. Yeah. And, it, and I know some people are going to be like, Newberg, you're out of hand here. Maybe I am. I'm pointing it out as the example that we have lost through this political appointment process. We have lost this independent trustee concept as a commissioner. Yeah. And it never used to be that way. In Montana, I think it was 79 when they changed it from the governor got to appoint the commissioners, but the commissioners hired the director, set the season, set the license fees, did everything. And all of a sudden some governors and some legislators are like, well, we can't be letting those five or seven people deal with this valuable asset. We got to get our fingers in the pie. Yeah. Well, and again, it kind of, to me, it goes back to people who are unknowing about the whole system and what impacts the decisions they make are going to have on 
the like the public land hunter or the or the private landowner or this like certain decisions are going to have these impacts and a lot of these commissioners don't understand the consequences of what their the decisions are making. Right. And it's just like and it's, I don't think it's necessarily bad intent in their mind. It's just they're they're trying to do what they think is best, but there's a lot of unintended consequences that yeah. people don't see. And so I love the idea of having commissions or at least people who are making the decisions be educated in the decisions that they're making, like right. having a fish and wildlife background or have, you know, this understanding what's going to happen when you make these decisions. Yeah. And I think that's lost in a lot of cases. I wish every person who accepted a role as a trustee of wildlife had to sit through a two or three day class about here is your public trustee duty as a commissioner, as a decision maker of wildlife. Most of them, you say public trust or public trust doctrine. They're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, they get this blank look on their face and that's a bad symptom. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's a symptom of the political process, just picking some plums and saying, well, here's, here's my buddy or here's who gave me a donation or whatever. And I know some, whether you you voted for someone as a Democrat or Republican, you're probably mad at me now because I said your, your person appoints commissioners based on who did them the most favors. Yes, that's what I am saying. <laughs> so be pissed off. Yeah. That, that is the way the process works. Some of the states, and I'm going to use an example in Nevada, they have done a really good job of insulating their department from the political process because of how they're structured, how their appointment system works, where the powers lie. So it doesn't have to be the way it is in some of these states, but Washington is like way, way out on the end of the plank. Yeah. Yeah. And just to, I guess we're running out of time here, but another point that I, I kind of brought up earlier is that it's disheartening when you see the disconnect between the department staff, like the biologists and the commission and the director even right. of the department. Cause that, that happened in Montana and I think it's happened in other States as well, where people just, they, they're not being listened to. It's like you go out and you do all this hard work to understand what's going on on the land. You do these surveys, you talk to the public, you have a pulse of what's going on with the landowners and what the elk are doing on any given spot. And then nobody listens to you. And so that's, I think, disheartening and disappointing, disappointing because this. Oh, I would. I mean, if I worked in a department, you know, it's one of those, you're going to get all the blame, but none of the credit. Yeah. And you're going to do what we tell you to do because, well, we're smarter than you. You know, I often joke that all these really smart people who went and got their master's and PhD in wildlife, you didn't need to go through all that school. Just get elected to the Montana legislature. You're instantly an <laughs> expert on wildlife issues. Yeah. Well, and it's created or whatever it, state. I, the Montana, no, all, all the Montana commissioners are going to be calling me too. Come on, man, we we give it our best. Well, all the yeah. Montana legislators maybe are going to be calling me. I, well, I mean, and I think it's not just the commissions either. I no, think sometimes I, it's high the higher up, and like you said, the legislature. The legislatures then, are often the worst. Yeah, for, for putting their their nose where it doesn't belong. Yeah, and I think it, it creates a scenario where people are almost afraid to speak their mind, and they're they're told not to speak their mind, right. or not necessarily their mind, but speak facts mm -hmm. and to share relevant information about stuff. And so, yeah, and that's you know, 
there's times where hunters go and try to, they didn't get their way out of commission meeting, so they try to drag it to the legislature or go, call their governor or whoever. You know when you do that, you're opening up a can of worms that you really, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. Yeah. And that's, but these trends, I'm glad we're talking about them because anyone who's not paying attention, these trends are happening. Yeah. And they're happening in the states where you really would have never expected it. And people are using the ballot box to either vote on ballot initiatives or to vote in the folks who are going to make Michael the greatest walleye tackle salesman in, in <laughs> yeah. Montana. But I, I didn't mean to get all your trout fishing buddies are going to be like, Michael, come on, man, push back on him. Yeah. But, so it's, it's just, it, it's a way bigger issue to the future of hunting and conservation funding and fishing than what people are giving it credit for. I, I think on our platforms, we got to keep talking about it more and more and more. I'm, uh, I'm having some more Washington guys come on to talk about it, about it on the Hunt Talk podcast later this summer because it's cool. It's yeah, that'll be interesting to hear. Yeah. So, well, I guess we're we're out of time on on the cameras. They're about to uh, did shut we solve off, so. did we solve the problem? It sounds like I think I, you solved it. All right. No, the I point being, folks. <laughs> Pay attention to what's going on in your state and be a member of your state-based organizations because they're the ones doing the heavy lifting.